Welcome to Covenant's Pulpit Ministry. Covenant Evangelical Free Church believes that the Bible is the Word of God and that God's Word is vital for life-transforming Christianity. We trust that you will grow to know the Word of God and more importantly, the God of the Word as you hear this message today. May God bless you as you open your heart to His Word. Good morning, church. It's a pleasure to be here and to bring God's Word as we look at Daniel chapter 8 this morning. I'd like to begin with a story. Uh, so the story goes that there was a, a Native American Indian tribe and the tribe had a new chief. This new chief was not very sure of himself, he wanted to be confident in what he did and he wanted to win the confidence of his tribe members. But when his tribe members came to him and asked him, for this coming winter, is it going to be a mild winter or a cold winter? He was totally stumped. You see, he was a modern chief. He, he didn't learn how to read the skies and the clouds and know the signs. He was unable to predict. So he thought to be safe, to err on the side of caution, he told them it will be a cold winter. And so off they went to collect firewood in preparation for the winter. And about a week later, this chief, who was very concerned, what if he was wrong? He decided he will call up the National Weather Service and ask. So he picked up his phone, he called them and asked them, is it going to be a mild winter or a cold winter? And the reply from the weatherman was that, looks like it's going to be a cold winter. So he was very assured, he went back to his tribe and told them, gather more sticks because it's going to be a cold winter. About a week later, again, he was unsure, might something have changed? So he called them again and he asked them, are you sure? Are you sure it will be a cold winter? And they said, yes, we are sure it will be a cold winter. And with that reassurance, he came back and he told his tribe, Gather more sticks as much as you can. Bring them in. It's going to be a cold winter. And then as the days went by, again, his confidence was shaken. And this time, this time, he called up and he said, this will be the last time I call, but I better make sure that nothing has changed. So when he called, he said, are you absolutely sure that this will be a cold winter? And they said, yes, we are absolutely sure it will be a cold winter. Then this time he asked, how are you so absolutely sure? And the weatherman on the other side said, well, we don't rely on our instruments in situations like this. We look at the native Indian Americans and we see them gathering so much firewood, it must be a cold winter that is coming up. So my friends, we can never really be sure. And that is... What I'd like us to pay attention to today, because we live in times of uncertainty, not just about the weather, but about the life that goes on all around us. To begin with, let's take a look at the weather 
And what I'm about to show you are news reports taken from just this one past week to show how we live in a life that is so uncertain and filled with so much change. Just in this past week, it was reported that temperatures have soared beyond 50 degrees Celsius in Thailand. Then, also in this week, we saw that the ex-president has become prisoner. In this same week, we saw that the mercenary chief who was most powerful in Russia was flying and mysteriously his plane crashed. In this past week, we also saw that Japan has begun to release its nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean in spite of all the protests from their neighbours. We also saw unprecedented in Singapore in this week when more than 18 locations had received bomb threats in our country, in Singapore, including the ENV building. Also, not from this week, but uh, a little bit more than a week ago, some of us were also quite shaken by this uh, newspaper article when we learned that there were gender-neutral toilets that were set up on the request of the organisers of an event at Suntech Convention Centre. My friends, we live in times of uncertainty, of much change, and in fact, the people of Israel, at the time when Daniel had received this vision in Daniel 8, were also living in a prolonged period of uncertainty. They were exiled to Babylon. They were looking forward to their time when they can return to their own homeland. But it was nonetheless fraught with tumultuous uncertainty. The text we'll look at today in Daniel 8 is God's revelation and reassurance to Daniel and through him to his people how God revealed two certainties for his people, two certainties for his people that they may remain steadfast in uncertain times, two certainties for God's people to remain steady in uncertain times. Times. And these two certainties apply to us today as we too live in uncertain times. So here they are. The first is that it gets worse before it gets better. We can be certain that it will get worse before it gets better. And secondly, we can be certain that God holds the end from the beginning. And what do we do with these two certainties that we may be remaining steady in uncertain times? What do we do with them? We are to remain steady in our walk and steadfast in our faith. So let's jump right in and take a look at the first certainty. This is the bad news that it gets worse before it gets better. And as we look at Daniel chapter 8, let's begin with verse 1. You will recall that over the last three weeks, we have studied chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we saw that Daniel had seen a vision of four beasts. 
the Ancient of Days and the one who looked like the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 7, it began in verse 1, saying, In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream with visions in his mind as he was lying in his bed. Now, today as we look at Daniel 8, I'd like you to note the similarity. In verse 1, it says, In the third year of King Belshazzar, which means that two years had passed between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it says, A vision appeared to me, Daniel, and look at how he points this back to Daniel chapter 7. He says, After the one that had appeared to me earlier, in parenthesis, in Daniel 7. Okay, so clearly these two chapters are linked, and we will see some of these links as we move along in today's message. These two visions are not just linked. Unknown to Daniel at that time, the third year of Belshazzar's reign, being 550 BC, was in fact the year that King Cyrus of Persia would overthrow his grandfather, King Astyages the Mede, and he would unite the Median kingdom and the Persian kingdom. And with control of this united kingdom, he would then go on to rise in power. He would crush the Babylonian Empire by 539 BC, and he would conquer the known world to be the next superpower. So, what was at stake was that superpowers were at war, and uncertainty was clearly the order of the day. So, this was what God revealed to Daniel when Daniel saw the vision of the ram with two horns. Let's take a look at the text. And this is what it says. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. Now I jump to verse 20, where the interpretation of the vision is given, and we are told the two-horned ram that you, Daniel, saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. No one, no one could stand up against Cyrus the Great. There was no rescue from his power, and he did whatever he wanted. That's what it says. No animal could stand against him in this vision, the animal. No opponent could stand up against him. There was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and he became great. The Persian Empire, under this Archimedes dynasty, which was started by King Cyrus, continued for about nine generations until the next superpower came along. And that's when they overthrew the Persians. So let's look at this next superpower that is also shown in this vision, in the vision 
that shows the goat. We had seen the ram, this is the goat. So in verse 5, Daniel says, As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn. Now you take note, there is one horn, right? A conspicuous one between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. You remember earlier on we read that the ram, nothing could stand against the ram. Now look what happens when the male goat comes charging at him. I saw him, the goat, approaching the ram and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue him from his power. Verse 8. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place. Remember, I asked you to take note, there was one horn. Now this one horn is broken, and it's replaced by four horns pointing toward the four winds of heaven. I'm going to jump to verse 21 and 22, where the interpretation of what this goat and its four horns mean. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of Greece. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represents four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Now, history informs us that this mighty king of Greece, the first king of Greece, represented by that one large horn, was Alexander the Great. His army swept across Egypt, Persia, and even parts of India, and he conquered Darius III of Persia. So nine generations after King Cyrus, Darius III of Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great, the Greek. And so he replaced the Persian Empire with Hellenism, Greek. But Alexander, he died prematurely, and his empire then fragmented. It broke up into four kingdoms. He had four generals, and these four generals each took one piece of his kingdom, and they were fighting among themselves. So remember, the one horn became four horns. These four horns represent the four kingdoms that it would be broken up into. So these were the four generals, and you see their names there. I will attempt to pronounce it, right? There's Seleucus, Ptolemy, there's uh, Lysimachus, and Cassander. Even if I pronounced it wrongly, you probably wouldn't know. But <laughs> these were the four generals. And the vision clearly shows Daniel way ahead of time. Remember, he was still in the time of the Babylonian Empire. And even with the Persians, the Persians had not taken over yet, but he was already seeing nine generations down when Alexander the Great would come, would overtake. And then Alexander the Great, because he died early, his four generals would then take a piece each. 
These were the four generals. Now, friends, in case you are thinking, so what? I mean, it's just uh, from one politician to another politician. You know, it's not quite like that. In the days that they lived, they, they didn't have uh, democratic governments who would elect their leaders. And then they would elect someone who will safeguard their national reserves and the integrity of their public service. Right? It didn't work that way. It was one king, a strong man, often a tyrant. And whatever he says gets done. He does not hand out majula packages to young seniors. Instead, these are very often power-hungry despots who tax their citizens to pay for their military campaigns. And they conscripted young men to fight in these battles. So my friends, it was a time of gross uncertainty, not just knowing what was immediately before them, but what was to come many generations down. God had chosen to reveal this to Daniel. And then, in verse 9, this is what it says, from one of them, from one of these horns, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. The beautiful land here refers to the land of Judah, right? the land of God's people. It grew as high as the heavenly army and made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trample them. Now, this is apocalyptic language to say that this little horn, this little horn had grown so big, so proud, so arrogant that it was reaching for the stars. It was as high as the heavenly army and it even caused some of the stars to fall on the earth. This language is to say that that was that pride that this little horn had grown into. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. That's God himself. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. So the four warring kingdoms eventually came down to between two kingdoms and from that two kingdoms eventually there was one and that was the Seleucids that arose. And from the Seleucids came this king, his name is Antiochus, Antiochus IV. Now, the preaching team believes that the little horn that is referred to in Daniel 7 as well as in Daniel 8 refers to Antiochus IV, which is why I circled that for you. He acted arrogantly. He persecuted the Jews in Judea. He desecrated the temple of Jerusalem. And even though he was merely a man, he thought himself as a god. Now, Friends, for some of us who are studying Daniel, and we are doing this in our uh, small groups, in our covenant groups, some of us are studying the book of Daniel. Uh, some have reflected a bit of confusion and have asked this question. The little horn that is mentioned, 
who is mentioned in chapter 7? Is it the same little horn in chapter 8? And I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain that because the answer is really, it depends on how you interpret Daniel 7. I know that this is a difficult book for us to be studying in our small groups. I'd like to give you a little bit of help. All right? So if you've been wondering, is it the same little horn in chapter 7 and chapter 8? I'd like to show you this chart. First of all, take a look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, you see that there are the beasts, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then there's a fourth beast, the indescribable beast. And in chapter 7, depending on which view that you take to interpret which empires to ascribe to these beasts, it will be different. There are two main views. There is the Roman view and there is the Greek view. Now, if you take the Roman view, you will see that the lion is Babylon, bear is the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard is Greece, and the indescribable beast in chapter 7 is Rome. However, it would be different if you take the Greek view of interpreting chapter 7. The difference being highlighted for you is that the indescribable beast would be Greece. Now, the trouble is in chapter 7, the text doesn't tell us which animal represents which empire as it does in chapter 8. So take a look at this. I'm showing you chapter 8 now. And chapter 8 does tell you that the ram refers to Medo-Persia and the goat refers to Greece. Now, depending on which view you take of chapter 7, and this is where it gets confusing, if you take the Roman view of chapter 7, you will see that the leopard is referring to Greece and therefore Greece in chapter 8 is the goat, and the little horn that is mentioned in chapter 8 is a different little horn from the little horn that's mentioned in chapter 7. Can you see that? Now you're totally lost. <laughs> this little horn is in the Roman Empire, and hence it's called the Roman view, whereas this little horn belongs to the Greek Empire, okay? and therefore this little horn and this little horn are different. However, if you take the Greek view of interpreting chapter 7 and see the indescribable beast as Greece, then the goat in chapter 8 comes here. The little horn that's mentioned here with the goat corresponds with the little horn that is mentioned with the indescribable beast. So what I'm trying to show you here is that depending on whether you take the Roman view or the Greek view of understanding chapter 7, you would have a different understanding of the little horn. Now, you'll probably be wondering, so what does covenant think? Just shortcut and tell us the answer. Okay. Both views are equally valid and there are good Bible scholars that are on both sides of the argument. In covenant, we've decided 
as a team that we are taking the Greek view. We're taking the Greek view. And because we take the Greek view, we see that the little horn in chapter 7 is the same little horn that is mentioned in chapter 8. Now, with that understanding, when you read your chapter 7 and your chapter 8, you would see this character, the little horn that represents Antiochus IV to be the same person who is mentioned. Take a look at what else is said about the little horn. In verse 23, near the end of their kingdoms when rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, referring to Antiochus, the little horn, the evil king. It says, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people, and he will cause deceit to prosper. His cunning and by his influence and in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of peace. This Antiochus IV, what terrible things did he do that correspond with prophecy? In 167 BC, Antiochus IV, he captured Jerusalem and he banned the Jews from worshipping Yahweh. He stopped them from offering the sacrifice. Remember, we read that. And, and he also prevented them from observing the Sabbath. Worse still, he slaughtered a pig, an unclean animal. He slaughtered a pig in the temple of God and offered it as worship to his God, Zeus, in God's temple. He then sprinkled the blood of the pig on sacred books of the Jews and he forced the priests and other Jews to eat pig meat. He was so full of himself that he minted coins with his image instead of his god Zeus. He put his own image and there was the inscription Antiochus Epiphanes. What does Epiphanes mean? means God manifest. So what he's saying is, I, Antiochus IV, am God manifest. Can you see how he has risen up to the heavenly host and attempted to challenge God himself? And so we see that with each kingdom that overcomes the previous, there is a new superpower, stronger and more powerful, more ruthless, that vanquishes the previous. It establishes a new empire. Things seem to get worse and worse. In fact, with the coming of Antiochus IV, there is a steep escalation of evil, and he even challenges God himself. But isn't this the word only to the Jews of Daniel's day? How is this still relevant to us today? Well, it is relevant because the text tells us in verse 17, when Gabriel came up and spoke and said, Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. And then further down in verse 19, he says, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath because it refers to the appointed time of the end. 
You see, my friends, this was not just a history lesson. This was not just an anticipation of what was about to come in history. It also points to the end of history, to the end of time, where we have not yet arrived at either. So I believe that Antiochus IV, he is a theological type of the Antichrist. He's one who represents the Antichrist who is to come. The man of lawlessness that Paul speaks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's a type of the beast that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 19. It has everything to do with us today. Now that's been very heavy going, very heavy going, but I'd like to bring us back. In the light of all that, what is the message that God is giving to us? That there are two certainties for God's people to remain steady in uncertain times. I hope I've been able to show you in all this that the people of God were living in uncertain times. And in fact, the certainty that this vision gives them is that it gets worse before it gets better. What then are they to do? They are to be steady in their walk and to be steadfast in their faith. But you say, hey, wait, 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 I, I see how it gets from bad to worse. But where do we see it getting better? Where is the recovery? Now, this brings me to my second point, which is that God holds the end from the beginning. God holds the end from the beginning. Now, in chapter 8, verse 13 and 14, this is what it says. And then I, Daniel, heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate. Remember the sacrifice that is no longer offered? The rebellion of an ungodly people against God. And the giving over of the sanctuary, the temple, and of the army to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, how long will this abomination still go on? Was the question. And the answer, the answer was 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there are two ways to understand this. Some scholars read this to mean 2,300 days. Others say that in the context of the regular sacrifice that's mentioned and the Jewish sacrifice is made in the evening as well as in the morning. Therefore, 2,300 uh, evening and morning sacrifices means it's actually half of that in terms of the number of days, which will be 1,150. Now, the important thing is not so much to understand the term the evenings and mornings. The important thing that I want us to take away is to see that God holds time in His hand. God knows how long this is going to continue. God has already predetermined the end right from the beginning. So when we ask how long, know that God already has predetermined how long we have to go through this. Now the second thing I'd like us to take note of is in verse 24 and verse 25.
where the Word of God says His power, referring to Antiochus IV, the little horn, His power will be great. And remember, we read this earlier about how He will cause outrageous destruction. He succeeds in whatever He does. He will destroy powerful people with holy people. But take note, in verse 24, it says His power will be great, but it will not be His own. And then at the end, at verse 25, after we are told that he will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning, through his influence, in his mind he will exalt himself, he will destroy many in a time of peace, he will even stand against the prince of princes, referring to God, he will stand up against God. And all these terrible things that he will do, and then right at the end, that one last phrase says, yet he will be broken. He will be broken, not by human hands. So my friends, we have to ask, if not by human hands, then by whose hand? If the power is not his own, then who has given him this power in the first place? And that brings us back to our whole study of Daniel, where right from the start we see that it is God who gave. God who gave leaders, kings, and people in authority. It is God who gave them this power and authority in the first place. It is the same God who can take it away. Israel has an Iron Dome missile defense system. And this is to protect them from rockets and mortars that are fired at them, especially when it is aimed at major populated areas in Israel. But one of the Iron Dome operators reported that he witnessed the hand of God when an incoming rocket was diverted into the sea. This is what he says. He says a missile was fired from Gaza. Iron Dome precisely calculated its trajectory. We know where these missiles are going to land down to a radius of 200 meters. That particular missile was going to hit either the Israeli Towers, the Kiria, which is the equivalent of the Pentagon, or a central Tel Aviv railway station. Hundreds would have died. So we fired the Iron Dome. We fired the first interceptor missile to destroy this incoming rocket and it missed. We fired a second one, and it missed again. This is very rare, and I was in shock. The defense system is highly effective, and yet, this time, it wasn't working. So this commander explained that with just four seconds left until the missile would have landed, and the military was already giving warning for emergency services to be on standby. Suddenly, the Iron Dome, which also calculates, amongst other things, it calculates wind speed. It showed that there was a major gust of wind that came from the east. A strong wind that was so strong that it pushed the missile into the sea. And we were all stunned, he says. I stood up and shouted, there is a God. I witnessed this miracle with my own eyes, he said. I saw the hand of God send that missile into the sea. 
You know, friends, this comes from the Israelis themselves. But on the other side, on the enemy side, apparently someone was asked, the, the, the terrorist, the Hamas was asked, why can't you aim your missiles properly to hit Israel? And this was the answer that they gave. When they were asked, why can't you aim better? One of the terrorists was reported to have protested. He said, we do aim our rockets, but their God changes the path of our rockets in mid-air. This is the hand of God that is at work. This is the hand of God that will exercise His power in due time. This is the hand of God that holds the end from the beginning. And this is the hand of God that we are to be rested in if we are to be steady in times of uncertainty. Friends, two certainties for us as God's people, just as it was for the people of God in Daniel's time, to remain steady in uncertain times. First, it gets worse before it gets better. And secondly, that God holds the end from the beginning. What then are we to do? Let's be steady in our walk and steadfast in our faith. I'd like to close with a final story. And this story is of a dearly beloved lady, Auntie Viola Shadrach. Auntie Viola came to our church about 20 years ago. And she came because Covenant moved into Bukit Panjang, which was where she was living. And before that, she was in Tamil Methodist Church. She then came to join us in Covenant EFC. And since then, she has been coming to church every Sunday. Some of you would have seen her in her later days. She would come in on a wheelchair and she would sit right there in that middle aisle. And Auntie Viola is one who loved the Lord. You see me in the picture there and I was celebrating her 94th birthday with her. This was in May and we were at a birthday party and I had a quiet moment with her. I whispered this to her. I asked her, Auntie Viola, what does a 94-year-old birthday girl wish for on her birthday? And without batting an eyelid, without missing a beat, you know what she told me? She said, I want to continue, which means she has already been doing this. I want to continue to wake up at 4 a.m. every day to pray for the next generation. I want to continue to wake up every day at 4 a.m. to pray for our next generation. And I was stunned. Some of us, even if we leave aside the 4 a.m., even if we leave aside the every day, just the praying for the next generation is quite a challenge really, right? Some of us praying every day, quite a challenge. Most of us, 4 a.m., don't even think about it. Here's a 94-year-old lady who says, I want to continue to do this. And I learned that she had already been doing this for many, many years, praying for her own children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and for the next generation. I also learned that she prays for the pastors of this church. Friends, this is a dear old lady that I will dearly miss. She left us because she was promoted to glory on the 3rd of August. Auntie Viola, we miss you. And at first I thought, I've lost an intercessor. But then I realized, no, that's wrong. 
This intercessor still continues to pray for our young generation, still continues to pray for our pastors from heaven. But even more importantly, this intercessor, this dear sister in Christ, has demonstrated for us what it is to be steady in her walk, to be steadfast in her faith, all the way to the very end. And that is the same thing that I'd like to call you to as we come to a close. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Our dear Father, we give you praise and thanks because you love us and you have called us to yourself. So that, Father, even when we are faced with uncertainties in our everyday life, we may remain steady because of what you have shown us from your word. Lord, would you help us to grow in resilience that we may be ready when it gets worse, even before it gets better. And would you enable us to hold fast to you, O God, because you are the one who holds the end from the beginning. Help us, O Lord, to be steady in our walk, to be steadfast in our faith. For we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, would you join me as we sing this song in response together? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lead on Jesus' name. With the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When darkness, when darkness fills Lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor rests within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking. His oath, his oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Church, I'm going to call the musicians to continue to play in the background. I'm going to call us to respond to God's Word. God's Word that reminds us that what is ahead of us may be uncertain. And it may even get worse. It will even get worse before it gets better. As we await Christ who is coming again, as we prepare ourselves, as we get ready for Christ who comes again, 
we hold fast to God who holds the end from the beginning. But church, I know that some of us are struggling. Some of us may have backslidden. Some of us may be discouraged. And this morning, my call to you is a very simple one. If you want to return to walk steady, to be steady in your walk, and to be steadfast in your faith, would you make a new commitment to the Lord and say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I want to be steady in my walk. I want to be steadfast in my faith. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Would you say to the Lord, Lord, I want to renew my commitment to you. I want to be steady in my walk. Help me, Lord, because I struggle. I fall. Lord, I want to be steadfast in my faith. Lord, would you enable me? Would you lift me up? Would you carry me? So if that's you, I ask you to just raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you very quickly. Yes, Lord, I want to be steady in my walk. I want to be steadfast in my faith. Lord, you see the hands that are raised, hands that respond to your word, hearts that are bowed to you, asking that, Lord, you will come and enable. And that is what I pray, O God, that you will come. You, O God, who holds the end from the beginning. Lord, would you come and help each one who has raised his hand, her hand, to walk steadily with you, to be steady in our walk, and that they may grow in faith to be more and more steadfast, steadfast in their faith, steady in their walk. For we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's proclaim it together. When He shall come, He shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may our dead in Him be found. Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. We're glad you had spent some time listening to God's Word, and we hope that the message has ministered to you can visit us at www.cefc.org.sg for more sermon titles. God bless you in your spiritual pilgrimage ahead.